the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Charles Eisenstein. Charles is a public speaker and author. His work covers a wide range of topics, including the history of human civilization, economics, spirituality, and the ecology movement. According to Charles, global culture is immersed in a destructive story of separation, and one of the main goals of his work has been to present an alternative story of interbeing. My approach to this episode was different to others. Typically, I ask my guests what they most would like to convey and teach to the show's listeners. However, in this episode, we went for an open conversation, allowing it to go wherever it needed to. The outcome, a deep, transformative and empowering discussion on the loss of meaning in the West, a sense of separation, coming back to community and into being. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Charles, here's my first question for you. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? It's, that's one of those things, if I really think too much about what it means, it begins to break down. Because th- there's a certain um, aspirational quality to self-reliance, like people want to be self-reliant. But ultimately, what I want more than to have to rely on myself is to have a community of trust around me upon whom I can rely. And in a way, or another way to look at it is for me, self-reliance is a matter of of having other people that I can rely on myself to rely on. Yeah, no, I think you're right. So just when you were saying that kind of where my mind was going was this, is that when I think of self-reliance, I'm not thinking of it in a narcissistic, all about me kind of perspective. The way that I think about it is that you're not much help to other people unless you've actually done the work yourself, that you are able to show up as your best, whatever that may be for each individual. And I think that's the crucial ingredient there, because at the end of the day, you can have people around you, but if you're not working on yourself or willing to bring your best to that experience, that becomes detrimental to everybody else, including yourself. Yeah, in a way, self-reliance it's more about um, being reliable. If other people can rely on you, then you'll be able to rely on them too. It's like, you know, the ideal of the uh, self-reliant frontiersman or something like that. Like they were, or traditional people, they were not actually self-reliant. They were strong because they had neighbors who would help them. And today, like we don't really have much community anymore. And so instead people rely on the state, corporations, the market. And and I guess like we're fed up with that dependency and that powerlessness. 
And so our go-to is, well, we need to be self-reliant, but there's an intermediate, there's, there's another choice, which is to rely on each other. And, and then so like, like facing uh, troubling times right now, for me, it's not about, okay, how can I make sure that me and my family will be okay and have enough, you know, food stored and, and, you know, gold bars in the basement and stuff like that. It's more like when the centralized systems break down that people rely on now, how can I be of use? You know, how, how, can, how can we learn to rely on each other? I think you hit the nail on the head because that's really what I was trying to achieve when I started this, what I call a pod class, but I guess most people would view it as a podcast. My perspective is that, you know, from every episode that people listen to, I want them to be able to walk away and have learned something. And the motivation was for the, for this pod class came about as COVID was kind of taking hold as I was looking around and exactly as you defined it then, and you said it is that, to me, at least, it seems like people are asking everybody else around them, especially the, govern the government is a good example, to help them out and have completely become non-reliant on their ability to actually navigate themselves through this, th this mess that we find ourselves in. And I think when you give yourself over to the corporations, over to the governments, really what you are doing is you're giving away your own personal power, your personal sovereignty. And I think there's a massive risk there. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this, but that is part of what we could you know, describe as a meaning crisis. Because as I look around, what I see is people are just almost as if they've just given up. They don't feel like they have anywhere to go. They don't feel like there's a there's a purpose to what they're doing. And, and I can draw attention just, just to this thing that I made a note of is that there was a recent study in 2019. And, you know, of course, studies as they go, you know, they're not always the, the best things to kind of reflect on, but it does kind of put this into the forefront. And this study was done in the UK and they found that, you know, between the ages of 16 and 29, people claim that their lives are meaningless. And that's the exact word that they used. They, they used the word meaningless. My life is meaningless. And that's between 16 and 29. And it wasn't that much different as they went up, right? So the average, the average overall amongst all the age groups, 80% of all the age groups said that they felt that their life was meaningless. I think a lot of that is coming from, and this was before COVID, uh, this, this study you were, you were saying, I think a lot of that is coming from a breakdown in our culture's story of itself. A generation, two generations ago, people didn't think life was meaningless because they were participating in this grand project. Uh, I call it the ascent of humanity, but it was the conquest of nature. It was the, the uh, transcendence of the world through technology. <clears throat> uh, like life was going to get better and better. Humanity was destined for great things. Every year brought fantastic new inventions and, and we were going to space and we were like, it was, and we were going to conquer all disease. Like this was almost unquestionable <clears throat> in like the 1950s. And people drew their personal sense of meaning from participation in that story. I'm going to become a rocket scientist. You know, I'm going to become a medical researcher. I'm going to become a captain of industry. 
I'm going to contribute to this grand plan. And today, even before COVID, I mean, nobody believed, well, not nobody, but most people no longer believe that this awesome future is in store for us and that we can draw meaning from participating in that. Like there's no magnetic pull to draw us toward and give life direction. So we've been grappling with this growing crisis of sense and meaning and identity for a, for a while now. Yeah, my, my perception is that it's been a slow creep over time, possibly even before the time that you described in the 50s when we all kind of were buying into this grand narrative. I don't think we were necessarily aware of it as we are now, but I think we may feel this awareness that life is meaningless, but I'm, I'm guessing most people, especially when I talk to them, they're not sure why they feel that way. They can't put their finger on it. I mean, you kind of described it there. Maybe we can explore that a little bit more. But I think part of it is, you know, people need to come to that realization on why they feel that meaninglessness. You know, why is that sense of meaning gone? Because I think that's crucial so that we can start thinking about how we can turn the tide. I mean, how can we create a new sense of meaning, a new story? I think that a new story is finding us right now and a new source of meaning. Uh, as things fall apart, uh, as crises converge from every direction, the shit gets real. You're no longer so distracted by celebrity news, you know, and sports, because there's something you got to pay attention to right now. The, the things that used to happen to other people, other places, Afghanistan, Yemen, you know, Colombia. <clears throat> now they're starting to happen. I mean, we're seeing the storm clouds gathering on the horizon that they're starting to happen here to the affluent countries, to the developed countries, to the countries that have not experienced significant social disorder since at least World War II. And in, in my country, even longer than that. Like that's changing. Normal is disintegrating before our eyes. And that, when things get really bad, like at first you might feel despair and hopelessness when you think you can't do anything about it. But now it's like, if, it's like if, if you're running from a bear, you're not gonna feel, you're not gonna, you don't have time to be depressed. You know, you're like dealing with an intense situation. And there's even a, um, a feeling of relief when finally, like, I don't know, for people who have been brooding about totalitarian tendencies for the last 20 years, now that it's finally happening, the despair begins to shift. And it's like, okay, I'm going to do something about it now. And that's a source of meaning uh, that, that, you know, paradoxically almost, it's, it comes from things getting worse. So as you were saying that, I was thinking, and maybe you can reflect on this. I'd like to see where, where, where you see this. I find it interesting there's a paradox, right? So if we look at people that were people of the, of the earth, people of the land, right? If we look at indigenous people and even people that were subsistence farmers never really had access to what we had access to as the norm, you know, electricity, flushing toilets, and so on, right? So the kind of the modern amenities that we just take for granted. They've 
in some sense, been sold the narrative that what we have is where you should be going in order to be happy. And so there are a lot of people moving out of those spaces where they were self-reliant and they were in community and moving towards this kind of modern vision because they're coming to it late, right? We've already, we've already gone through the rinse cycle. They're going into the cycle. And then we have us, which you mentioned the word, the affluent, right? The middle to middle upper class in, and so forth saying, hold on, this hasn't worked and we need to rediscover a new way to experience living. And in some kind of weird way, we're wanting to go back to the place where, for example, the Maasai are trying to move out of, if that, if that makes sense, right? So you've got these kind of indigenous tribal communities moving towards where we are trying to move out of. And I guess for me, that's, it's kind of scary because you know, I wish I could tell them, hold on a second, going down the path that you think the West has sold you is going to, you know, bring about happiness isn't actually going to be. And actually, for anything, you, from the indigenous knowledge standpoint, actually understood happiness far better than we do now. In actual fact, we've lost that. We no longer know what that is, that is to be. And I think for me, that's my, that's my story now. My story is waking up to that realization and going back rather than going further in, into the, the kind of future, because the way things are right now, I don't think the way that it's being presented is going to get any better. I'm going to have to find a new way to show up. But I find that paradox very interesting, you know, where you've got one segment of the human animal, the human you know, population trying to move towards this thing that we are trying to get ourselves out of. Yeah. So, so yeah, I have a few things to say about that. One is that the failure of the future is indeed, you know, and the fact that, you know, not only are we not getting any closer to paradise, but things are actually getting worse from, you know, public health to politics to the environment. <clears throat> like it's obvious that we're not doing that well in the technological paradise plan. So that's opening up a kind of a humility. It's like, oh, um, maybe other cultures actually, the ones that we've been telling, you should be more like us. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe we've lost precious knowledge in the course of development. And like, so you're saying, but they wanna go in our direction. Well, a lot of that, you have to look at the context of the wanting. So it's not that like they necessarily decided, you know, arbitrarily, that their traditional way of life is bad. It's that it's been under tremendous pressure coming from, from us, you know, coming from the West, coming from the corporations and the governments. So like you could say, well, you should value subsistence agriculture, but at the same time, maybe uh, communally held lands are, <coughs> are being, <coughs> excuse me, communally held lands are being, uh, cut up and assigned property rights and, and you know, taken over by biofuels plantations, uh, or people have to pay taxes in hard currency that they can only earn through wage labor, uh, or propaganda is coming in in the form of schooling that says your traditional ways are backward. So, so it's not just that like they, you know, turned on their own beliefs. It's a process of 
colonization. So, you know, I think, it, yeah, I think there is like an important role for saying, hey, guys, we made a mistake. The, the vision of development we're offering you is a dead end. Um, and here's my experience. Like there's definitely a role for that. And, but if you do that, and at the same time, continue to pressure them economically and in other ways, like countries that resist what's called development, if they resist, you know, World Bank development loans and military sales, I mean, how do they pay for the sales of military weaponry? How do they pay for mega dams? How do they pay for port facilities and highways? They pay for that in hard currency. How do they earn hard currency? Through exports. So that means that, they're, that they have to destroy natural resources and convert their subsistence agricultural and hunter-gatherer populations into a paid workforce. So if we keep pushing that, so basically we're saying, well, don't develop, but you better develop or we're going to you know, take over your country and regime change you. Like that's hypocritical and futile. So I think that that you know, in addition to the narrative piece, we also have to look at the the economics and the geopolitics of it. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and you made some really important points there. I guess for a lot of people, and 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 maybe I oversimplified it before, but what are people to do? I mean, where what can we do? That that's the question, right? So if we are as we are, myself and you, and and many other people listening to this, we are in the Western world. Uh, we're in middle to middle upper class. You know, we, we live an okay life, but we don't feel that we have meaning and we see what's on the horizon, which doesn't look really good. What can we do about it? I mean, where should we start? What's some, I mean, obviously we want things that we can practically do, right? We want some things that are manageable. Yeah. I would say that, I mean, there are a million things that people can do and it's not my job to tell you which one is right for you. Sure. Um, but there's another, um, I think, a, a, an underlying question to what should I do, which is how can I recognize what to do when I have the opportunity to do it? And that comes from a new and ancient way of seeing the world and oneself and the purpose of a human being. In, in the narrative that most of us grew up in, um, the purpose of a, of a living being was to maximize reproductive self-interest. That's what we're taught in genetics, in biology class, survival of the fittest. In economics, we are taught that human beings naturally seek to maximize uh, financial self-interest, that we are separate individuals in it for ourselves. That's not actually the purpose of human being. We're not, our purpose here is not to survive. We are creators. We are in the image of the creator. We are here to serve the continued unfolding of life and beauty on earth. And when we understand that, then we have a lot more courage because, okay, I might take a risk to do that. I might risk my security, my livelihood, even my life. I might risk public opinion. I might risk ostracism. I might, there, there are risks. When you serve life and beauty, 
then you are not serving security and keeping safe. Maybe that's secondary or tertiary. It's not unimportant, but it's not the most important thing in life. I mean, that should be obvious. If you know you're going to die, then the most important thing in life is not to survive. It's, it's to do what you are here to do. And I think that that orientation, when, when a person connects with that and has a community, maybe even a podcast that they listen to, but a community of voices that are saying, yes, that is why you are here. When they have examples of other people living in, in that way, then that knowledge is rekindled. And then like when, when you're connected to that knowledge, then the opportunities become obvious. And what that is for one person might be to, you know, get all their neighbors to plant gardens, you know. For another person, it might be to resist some totalitarian policy that is coming through their workplace. For another person, it might be to um, stop a polluting project on the river, you know, for, I mean, it, what exactly it is. I mean, it could just be to bring more music and laughter to people, you know, like wh whatever that service to life and beauty is, is different for each person because each of us has unique gifts and a unique situation in life. But, but that's the underlying uh, agreement that we need to, to begin to, to, um, promulgate in the world. Like it comes down to that. What is a human being for? Why am I here? And our culture has pushed that aside. Like when you get that existential angst, when you get that, that midlife crisis, you know, this, and it's, I mean, it were a youthful crisis um, of defiance and, and rejection and idealism all mixed together. We're like, oh, here, why don't you watch a movie? You know, here, here's a distraction. Here's something to think about. Here's somebody to hate. Here's, here's another source of identity. And, and so our culture has like pushed away the most important question for a human being. And now everything that's been pushed away is rushing back in and calling us to it. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. And again, a lot of what you described there we can look to indigenous cultures and that ancient knowledge. And that's what they understood. And that's what they, they talked about. That's how they were in the world. And as you noted, we've pushed all of that aside. Just as you were saying that too, and I know you've talked about this um, elsewhere, there's a sense of bravery that's required to step out of the status quo, to step outside of the matrix, so to speak, to stand up against the machine because the machine doesn't care about us at all. It just wants to use us as fuel, right, for the next acquisition, the next conquest. And so taking that step out it requires an enormous amount of bravery. And that's important because you may be stepping into a space where you're not going to be able to acquire all the trinkets, the financial goodies that are on you know, on show and, and are available to those people that are willing to play within the system. Yeah. And it's, and it's not only trinkets, you know, and financial goodies. I mean, it could be like your security. Yes. Feeding your kids. Like people, someone just wrote me yesterday, like, you know, like she said, I don't believe in the injection and neither does my husband, but you know, we are living paycheck to paycheck. He had to get it. Mm. And 
you know, I'm not going to say, well, he shouldn't have gotten it, but um, it's like, it hurts to live under compulsion. You know, we're not meant to be slaves. We're not meant to live by have to. We're meant to, to choose and to, to create. And um, bravery, <clears throat> one, one, one way I see bravery is that it, it comes from simply a devotion to an aim. So it comes from love. I mean, maybe that's why it's called courage. You know, it's a capacity of the heart. So it comes from caring about something so much that you don't care as much anymore about the risks. It's like, you know, if like a parent, if, if their child is in danger, they will go to rescue that child. No second thought because they love the child. They care about the child. So bravery, it's not something that one can or should aspire to, I want to be brave. Bravery is a side effect of being connected to what you care about. And that connection, like, how do you maintain that connection? Like you might have a moment of revelation, you know, and, and like, oh my God, I really can't, but, but then, you know, things call you away from that. The routines of life call you away. Uh, the, the voices that are be like, well, you can't afford to do that. Like what, what keeps you connected to what's important? For me, it, it comes back a lot to community. Other people saying, yeah, I care about that too. That is important. And then I become part of a, a, a field, a field of caring that enables me to be brave. In a way, like if I'm brave, it's because a lot of other people are also being brave. And every time I'm brave, then I help others be brave too. Because I'm anchoring this principle of devotion towards something beyond me. That's how we become brave together. Yeah, I can see that. That's, re that's, really, that's really good. You, you talk about community. For somebody listening to this and you know, they're saying to themselves, you know, I've been wanting to do something and I, and I need to be brave. And I realize in order for me to do this, I need community. Do you have any suggestions on how someone can build that community? Because I also see so many people are so distracted. They, they're just, you know, literally just struggling to just keep abreast of just the, the everyday things that are happening in their lives, right? I can imagine like somebody waking up and they have 50 emails before they even have their first coffee. You know what I mean? It's like, and they, they, they're attached to so many different things, this group, this idea, and so on and so on, right? So there's this kind of, their, their focus is completely spread so thinly. How do you break into that? How do you get your message into, into a place where you can build a community where people will want to come and actually support you and also grow along with you? Well, okay. Um, one thing is simply like foundational, which is to validate the desire to be connected which means actually letting go a little bit of self-reliance. To be in community means to be in a state of mutual dependency with others. It means to be in a network of flow of that, that, that brings gifts and needs together. So if you wanna be in community, then you have to be willing to give and willing to receive gifts 
which means that you didn't pay for it. It means that I owe you one because you did something for me. If I pay you for it, then we're even and we don't have a further relationship. So maybe like a simple practice because the habits of, like you were saying, you get up, you look at the emails, like it's a day of have to, have to, have to, a state of constant anxiety. A constant low level anxiety is a hallmark of modern life. So maybe uh, a practice is you wake up and you take a few minutes, like a little meditation, take a few minutes to remind yourself that, that I am here to give and I am here to receive to orient yourself toward that. And, and then eventually carry that into every situation. Am I being called to give something right now? Am I being called to receive something right now? Receiving can be even harder than giving because then it puts you in a state of debt. So, so, and then it brings up, you know, whatever unworthiness, but a lot of the unworthiness is this protective mechanism of, I don't want to be too connected to you. And, and I'm not saying, okay, there's a lot there, but I'll just say community comes from gift. So if you orient yourself, it's like what I was saying at the beginning, if society collapses, you're going to want to have things to share. It could be skills, could be Maybe you did store up some food and some bicycles and stuff, but you, you don't hoard them. You share them with your entire neighborhood. Maybe it's music. Maybe you play music. I mean, that's going to be important no matter what happens in the world. So you have something to give. And, and yeah, like our society right now, because it is so highly monetized and market, marketified, people don't actually look to each other very much anymore outside the money economy, anything I want or need, I want to listen to some music, you know, I go to Spotify, right? I don't need the guy next door who plays his guitar. I don't even know if the guy next door does play a guitar, but I do have a community now where we do get together and people bring out their guitars. And that actually meets a need that no amount of Spotify can meet. So another piece of it is recognizing the poverty of the fully monetized life. There's something missing here. And to, and, and, and to feel that it's not just that there's something missing, but to feel the loss of a promise to life, a promise of connectedness and intimacy and authentic relating, like a promise of enchantment, a promise of belonging, to feel the betrayal of that, the disappointment of that, the, the, Disappointment that we are so bravely making the best of in the cubicles and screens of modern life. Like that's a big step to actually feel the grief of that loss and, 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 and to be like, yeah, this is not how it's supposed to be. And I'm not crazy for being dissatisfied in these squares, in these boxes to just validate your needs and to validate the, 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 yeah, the rightness of, of wanting to break free of that cell. Like that, because a lot of the restrictions, a lot, they're self-imposed. We've learned to be separate and become fearful of opportunities to break out of that separateness and doubtful of ourselves for even wanting that. 
like you're supposed to be well-adjusted. But as Krishnamurti said, to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society, I mean, that is insanity. It is no measure of sanity to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society, he said. So, so once we recognize that and feel the loss, at least we're not uh, participating in the gaslighting of ourselves. We're not saying, oh, everything's fine. You think something's not fine here? Well, that's a mental problem. <laughs> that's a psychological problem. You have to get with the program. You have to get with it. You have to buck up, stiff upper lip and be happy and count your blessings. No, we're not supposed to live like this. And it's almost like we're getting pushed farther and farther into wrongness, into separation, where, I mean, I just saw this picture of kids in school, each with a six foot ring around them and wearing masks. And they're not allowed to fucking talk to each other. Excuse my language. They're not allowed to talk to each other, right? And it's like, how far do we have to be pushed before we begin to trust our instincts, which is to say no. And then when we say no, then we start saying, and we recognize what we say yes to. And this is the generator of, of community. I love that. I think what would be important at this point, Charles, let's explore a little bit how you came to the work that you're doing right now. I mean, I guess what I really want to ask you is, you know, like how, how did, you know, how did you come to this? Like what was your moment of realization or was just incremental over time? Oh yeah. I mean, I could, you know, tell you my whole life story, um, but it involved, you know, at first a unconscious or semi-conscious recognition that, of a wrongness in the world. There's something that this is not how it's supposed to be. And then um, holding on to that. Like, and sometimes, you know, I would question, oh, maybe things are fine, you know, and then like some new wrongness, some new atrocity would enter my field. And I'd be like, no, 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 this is utterly wrong. Uh, that coupled with um, experiences with psychedelics and experiences in another culture living in Taiwan, that, that both of those violated the, the confines of reality as I had been taught. You know, I, was, I went to Yale University, I was highly rational, you know, studied mathematics and philosophy, science. I was like, you know, I never fully bought into it, but I was on a surface level, I'm like, well, we have basically the answers or at least the means to get there. And we kind of know what's real and what isn't, what's, what's fact and what's fantasy, what's science and what's superstition. But then with psychedelics, I experienced just how narrow a corner of reality we had boxed ourselves into. And with experiences with Qigong practitioners and feng shui fortune telling, shamans, you know, like um, Chinese medicine, like, I'm like, oh, actually, these like Chinese medical doctors, like they are capable of things that are considered medically impossible. And, and things happen that are utterly outside the bounds of what is real, but they're happening, you know, like I'm seeing it with my own eyes. I'm feeling it in my body. People I trust are nonchalantly telling me their experiences. Like, 
okay, so am I going to sweep all that aside to stay fixated on, to stay in the comfort zone of what I was told was real and therefore who I am in that reality, or am I going to let it open up? And so that was another part of how I came to do what I, what I do. It was so a push and a pull. The push being, this cannot be right. There's got to be something outside. The pull being, here is a glimpse of it. Here is what the world could be built on. So much bigger, so much more beautiful. So building off of that, how would you define your work? I mean, what, what are you trying to achieve? Because, I mean, I've been watching a lot of your interviews. I love all of them. You know, you've got your own community, a new and ancient story. What are you trying to achieve? If you, when you wake up in the morning and you do your meditation and you set your intention, what is the goal for you? Well, for a long time, it's been to, to, serve, the, to serve a new story on earth, to serve the emergence of a new story, a new and ancient story that gives new answers to who we are, why we're here, what's real, what's important. And uh, more recently, I've shifted my, my commitment. It's now to enjoy life, to, to, to be fully alive and to, to fully receive the gift of life, which might make it seem, and this is one of my fears, well, okay, does that mean I'm retiring? Does that mean I'm not going to serve this other work anymore? But oddly enough, I've become much more productive since I've decided to put my work second and to put fully receiving the, the joys and gifts of life first. The joys of receiving those gifts of life, where are they coming from? Where are the gifts coming from? Is it coming from family? It's inherent in life. It's inherent in life itself. Like, yeah. Um, I actually learned it, learned a big piece of it from my mother as she was passing, she um, was in pretty serious discomfort. She was uh, dying of pancreatic cancer and she was losing her hearing. She's a lifelong music lover. She couldn't hear music anymore, but she was undaunted. She said, well, there are so many wonderful things to look at. And so she you know, bought these art books and would look at the art and, and even like, a breeze on her face or sunlight falling on her hands. She would be like, life has so much to offer. And she was in full gratitude receiving that. And, and like, I'm like, wow, if she can enjoy that and appreciate that in the midst of so much discomfort and no future, you know, like, I mean, she was in her final months and weeks, like, do I want to wait till then till I'm in that state to finally enjoy and appreciate life? So, so yeah, I mean, the gifts are everywhere. It's, it's not to say that I'm always comfortable. Like pain is a part of life too, but I've learned to recognize I'm learning to recognize that the baseline is the availability of, of joy, of pleasure, of delight. Like it's always available. 
And maybe there's an occasional toothache that interrupts it. And that could last 10 years. I mean, some people are have suffering like chronic intense pain for years and years and years. And this is where it gets into some of the more, you know, mystical psychedelic things. Like even that is a tiny, tiny blip in eternity. And even in the midst of that, there's still, like my mother demonstrated, there's still a lot of joy. And so part of it, yeah, like just her, I mean, I can, I can intellectualize it, but it was being in the presence of that that opened something for me. That was the last gift that I received from my mother. And that's beautiful and powerful. One thing that's really made a massive shift in my own just sense of well-being is when the whole COVID thing happened, I got locked down on the Isle of Man. And, you know, it's a beautiful island. It's just off the coast of, the, of, of, of England. And I had the opportunity through that time to just take a step back and spend enormous amount of time outdoors in nature. And that was a very profound shift for me, was just the realization on what actually is needed to be happy, which isn't a whole lot. And you can only really experience that in those moments of what I could call profound ecstasy, where I'm just fully you know, connected to a place that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. You know, just being out in the natural world, connected to nature, and just being fully immersed in that experience was very, very powerful for me. So as we come to the end, I wanted to ask you to leave the listener or listeners with some words of wisdom, some maybe not advice, because I know you wouldn't want to give advice, but just some words of wisdom that they can meditate on and contemplate. Well, I don't know your listeners personally. Maybe you can... Uh... Maybe you can um, channel your listeners and ask, like, maybe not ask a question, but like, um, what's, what's the condition right now to speak to? I think a lot of the listeners that are listening to this are searching for that sense of meaning again. I think many of them are feeling this loss and haven't been able to put their finger on what is actually being lost. To those people, I would first say, um, even if this sense of loss is just like this faint ache inside you, but maybe it's more than a faint ache. If you can feel it, that's a treasure. Because if you're starting to feel it, and maybe you're feeling it more and more, that calls to what is missing. If you don't feel it, if you don't hold that as a treasure, then you're not going to be oriented toward meeting that need. I don't know if that'll make it easier or harder but at least you're not going to be fighting yourself, telling yourself there's something wrong with you. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.